Oh, man, I appreciate that. That, was, that brought back a lot of memories. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to go back to Proverbs chapter 6 here as we're working our way through that great chapter. As you know, we've been coming through the book of Proverbs and uh, about the last year or so. And last week we examined or uh, uh, finished up a complete study uh, on the six things that God hates. And we talked about and showed you how that the seventh one, which is sowing discord among the brethren, uh, makes them ab- an abomination. And now we know, and I took the time to show you how they fit the first week from a practical standpoint that we all have to deal with in, in people and situations in life. And then last week I showed you the prophetic application as it went to the Antichrist and his hatred toward uh, the nation of Israel, which, by the way, fit right into what we talked about Thursday night uh, as coming through that dispensation on the tribulation period. But simply for us, staying away from the people uh, who will try to divide the unity and the oneness of, of the work of God. And I guess in all the things of Christianity and all the things that uh, in churches and all the things in the work of God, the one key word that has to be there, and you're never going to get it in a perfect, perfect way, but as close as you can get it will be the aspect and the concept of, of unity. You know, I was reminded of a great truth that I had preached many years ago, and I really forgot about it, uh, and, and a great illustration that I had used to illustrate it. I was preaching one time out of Ephesians chapter 4 on the unity of the church, and I had remembered something I had read in a book a long time ago, but then, and, and then I made a movie, and it was in the movie also. And last week was Memorial Day weekend. And you know, on Memorial Day, they put all the, man, for the whole weekend, it's just one good war movie after the other. And I, I was there. I wasn't planning on it. And I turned the TV on. I sat down there for a few moments, and, and this movie came on. I hadn't seen for years, and it's, it's, it's a great movie. It's called 12 O'Clock High. It was made in 1949. And uh, it's probably one of the best war movies that, that you'll ever see. And it's, it's based on, on daylight bombing that took place uh, in Europe in, 19, uh, uh, in World War II in the early stage. Uh, and, you know, most people don't think about it, but we never fought on the continent of Europe itself until D-Day of 1944. The only war that was carried on the continent before then was the air war. And that is the 8th Air Force and the 9th Air Force. They, they did daylight bombing missions uh, to, uh, to, to uh, hurt Germany's war production and, and demoralize them and all of that. And it was very new. The British had tried daylight bombing and then gave it up and switched to nighttime bombing just because their losses were so heavy. And this movie is about that very same thing. But in the movie is a great illustration of what uh, I think a church ought to be when you look at it and understand it. And uh, the losses of the Americans were terrible. In fact, a B-17 crew, uh, which consisted of 10 men, uh, in the early days of the war, uh, their life expectancy was probably two missions. And uh, there was no criteria where they got out after 25. That came later, but early on, they just flew till they died or that they, you know, they couldn't fly anymore. And the losses were terrible. I mean, you send th- lose 30 planes, 40 planes on a, out of 500, you lost 400 men. And it was a terrible thing. During the process of those early days, someone came up with the idea of flying in formation in a very strategic pattern. Somebody sat down, and here's the theory how it was supposed to work. A B-17 was called a flying fortress. 
that it was manned with 10 50 caliber machine guns. Now, this don't mean much to you ladies, but, you know, but, so just bear with me here, but I want to make my point. Now, that on, you've got 500 planes in a squadron, that's, that's 5,000 guns. Each one of those guns can fire 500 to 600 rounds a minute. In theory, you have a mass of airplanes that can shoot on a consistent basis 2.5 or more million rounds a minute. Now, what this guy's theory was is you put him in tight formation, because what the German Luftwaffe would do is they would fly into them, split them up, come head on, split them up, and then pick off the stragglers, and then once they got the group disbanded and scattered, then they could pretty much do what they wanted to do. His idea was to never break formation. His idea was to fly them so tight together and stagger them at different altitudes that when a German plane was coming in from the left or the right or the front or the back or from the bottom or the top, that plane was flying into no less than 600,000 rounds coming at him at a time. And you'd have to really be in a plane flying to see 600,000 tracers coming at you to appreciate that circumstance. His theory was simply this. If the bomber groups could fly tight formations and every plane and every man realized that his gun was part of the defense system, they called this group integrity, that there would be no German airplane that could get in between the groups to split them up. They could only attack them from the outside, but they could never get in and divide them and the whole concept and theory was built on if one man failed, if one plane failed to do his job, everybody suffered. And it was called group integrity. It required every man at his station to do his job. The pilot to stay in that formation. The gunners to synchronize together to keep everybody out that nobody could get into those formations to scatter them. Once they did that, the losses plummeted. And I'm not saying they didn't lose planes, but they didn't lose as many planes as they did because they flew tight formations. And I've always, when I saw that years ago, I've always thought to myself that churches and Christianity should adopt the same theory. Instead of calling it group integrity, we'll call it church integrity. Each person biblically flying a tight formation of Bible principles and Bible doctrine that no enemy can penetrate from within to divide the church, the group. And, uh, you know, and last week we, we saw how that works. And that was one of the greatest illustrations that I ever saw in my life. And this concept is exactly what we're going to see here in this next passage that we're going to look at today. How to, as an individual Christian, accomplish this in whatever church you're part of. And when the whole church adopts that doctrine of integrity, that no, every person is important, every person is important to keep the church group integrity intact, then a lot of your problems that churches have, they wouldn't have. Now look at Proverbs chapter 6, and let's look at verse 20 here, and come down through about verse 23. My son, keep thy father's commandment, and forsake not the law of thy mother. Bind them continually upon thine heart, and tie them about thy neck. When thou goest, it shall lead thee. When thou sleepest, it shall keep thee. And when thou awakest, it shall talk with thee. 
For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light, and the reproofs of instructions are the way of light. Now, Father, we come to you today, and these folks have come here this morning because they want something from your word. And Lord, I as a man, I have nothing to give them. Only as the Holy Spirit of God uh, will flow through me today as I yield myself to you. And Lord, this is a great passage and there's some great things. This is a great chapter, but the book of Proverbs is a great book. Help us today to grow today, to learn today, to leave here a little uh, more in touch with you and in tune with the things of God. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and the sake we ask it. Amen. Now, this is a great little passage here. And so I, I look at this, and I see so many of you are right here, right now in your life. Uh, you're following the principles. You're, 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 you make a, a male and female. And you're, you're doing with what the principles, we have spent now 10 years of our lives since this, almost 11. And we have, and many of you have been around now uh, a bulk of that period of time. And even the ones that have been here not quite that long, you're getting it. I'm watching, I'm watching it change about you what the Bible says it's supposed to change. And what follows here, if you remember the last couple of weeks, is the process of you and me keeping the commandments of our Father and the law of our Mother and allowing the Word of God what it does best in our lives. Forget about the Bible being a history book. Forget about the Bible being a book on prophecy. Forget about the Bible being the end times. Forget about the Bible being, think of the Bible as a book of God's character qualities. And when you and I approach the principles of God to learn the Word of God and change from looking at life the way that we have and making the choices in life by the way we've had and bring it over to God's side that Bible will do exactly what it says it would do and what it is doing exactly in many of your lives today, building God's character qualities in your life. You know, I think one of the major concerns today with God's people is simply their inability to fully understand the New Testament concept of grace. We think the Old Testament is all about the law, and it is. You know, everybody looks at the Old Testament and goes, oh, I wouldn't want to live back there. You can't do anything without getting killed for it. I understand that. But the New Testament, we think it's all about grace. And where in the Old Testament, our mental mind is, they couldn't do anything. In the New Testament, we think that it allows us as Christians to do whatever we want to do. And that's not true. That's not true. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 says, All things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. Expedient means not all things are wise for us to do. Bible says in John chapter 1 verse 17 that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And you have to understand the balance between grace and truth. And there are some commandments that we have to follow. There are some rules that apply to you and me as New Testament Christians in the form of principles. And principles, as I've told you many, many times, are the rules of conduct of life that must be followed. Now, around here, we, we put a lot of emphasis. If you stick around here any length of time, you'll find out that we put a lot of emphasis on Bible principles around here. 
the book of Proverbs, one of the reasons why we're studying it is because of where our church is at in its overall growth process. And it was very obvious that it was time for many of these people here that are sitting under the sound of my voice to move up to that next level. And many of them have. But principles are laws. They're rules. They're rules of conduct. When you get God's wisdom, then it's about getting the principles by which you make right choices over bad ones. This last week, I, I went to, to Macy, uh, my youngest granddaughter's, her graduation. She graduated from kindergarten. I, I wanted to go simply because I never got to do that. I stayed in kindergarten for just about ever. I think, I think I still am. It was one of the sweetest things I'd been to, but it broke my heart in a, in a sense. And in me, you know, I don't go to anything or look at anything without seeing through what's happening and seeing many times the reality of what probably is really going to happen. There must have been about 80 or 90 little kindergarten kids. And every one of them came up. They had a little diploma for them. And every one of them come up to the microphone and said what they wanted to be in their future. Most of them, Joe, wanted to be police officers. I thought that was very admirable. Many of them wanted to be vets. I thought that was very good. Not veterans, but veterinarians. I thought that was very good. Some of them wanted to be scientists. Some of them wanted to be nurses. Some of them wanted to be doctors. Some of them wanted to be lawyers. Some of them wanted to be, one of them wanted to be a pastor. He has no idea what he's in for. <laughs> Some of them wanted to play football. Some of them wanted to play baseball or basketball. And it was the cutest thing in the world. But I got to be honest with you, the sad part is, as I sat there, as much as I enjoyed it, I thought to myself, you know what? The reality is most of those kids will never realize their real dreams. I didn't hear anybody say, I want to be a drunkard. But you know what? In the world that we live in, some of those kids will grow up to be alcoholics. Not one of those kids came up and said, I want to be a drug addict. But you know as well as I do in the world that we live in, some of those little kids with their little dreams will never get realized and they will grow up to be drug addicts. And not one little girl come up and said, I want to be an unwed mother. But many of them will. Not one person got up and said, uh, uh, you know, I want to be this and I want to be that. That was on a bad connotation. But as I sat there, I thought to myself, you know what? Most of these kids will never realize the dream that they have that is an honorable dream of what they want to do in life because the devil will make sure that that doesn't happen. I'd say it's a simple fact that every problem we have and the thing that will keep many of those little kids, and it, it's not just there, it's all around, and this is commencement. This is where people graduate. Last week, one of them went, my kid, grandkid went to middle school from elementary school. Some of you are going from high school to college or whatever. And you all hear the same commencement thing. It's all about success. But the truth of the matter is, I'm telling you, success in your life, no matter how old you are, kids, success in your life is based on the choices we make. Not about the little dream that you have that's an admirable dream. It's about the choices that we make in life. And I, I can honestly say, and I think this is true, and you probably would agree with me, that every problem we have gotten into today, all of us, we got it into, it's based on violated principles of God's Word that have went bad in our lives. And I want to say something to you. 
violated principles in our lives as Christians, the situation can go bad very quickly. When I was 11 or 12 years old, I can't remember exactly how old I was. I was just like any other kid. I was dumb, I was stupid. I got in a lot of trouble with dumb things. I never robbed the bank or stole anything. I just did a lot of dumb things that kids at 11 and 12 do. Like the day I burned down the back gate of our house. Almost burned down the garage. Mom and dad were at work. They were hard workers, and they worked, and me and my sister was at home, and I never listened to my sister who's older than me, and I did my own thing, and I was playing with gasoline. I was making little gas bombs out of shotgun, 12-gauge shotgun shells, empty ones, but I was filling them up with gas. You know how the old paper water shotgun shells used to crimp out so you could close them back up again? So I filled them up with gasoline, closed them back up, but I put a little fuse in them, you see. I tried lighter fluid. It didn't give me the bang that I wanted. (laughs) Well, that was a bad choice. (laughs) I found out you don't need a fuse to set off gasoline. And the bottom line was, I was so stupid, I set the gas bomb right next to a little can of gasoline, which, praise the Lord, was only had about that much left in it. I never saw some, I never saw, and I've never forgotten this, I never saw a bad choice get out of control so quickly. All I can see is my little self at 12 years old, it, it, it's, it's a... It's a perfect thing for a Chevy Chase movie, and I would be Uncle Eddie. I mean, it was a thing where I ran up. The, I mean, it started. the gate started on fire. The grass started on fire. The gate was burning. And the big part is when my, my sister said, I'm not telling Mom or Dad. You tell them. Well, I wasn't going to tell them. I really thought that they would never see the burned gate back there. That was another dumb choice on my part. That gate was gone, man. And it was good into the grass. We had a grape arbor over here right to the side of us. It was burning. It was moving into the garage. And the garage was, back then, was a, was a pot, was a tinder box. So my little legs are running up there. And I remember, the st- like I was yesterday, getting a big garden hose out. And I'm standing there. I'm, I'm, I'm 20. It, it, it's not long enough to get down there. I'm, I'm arcing the water, <laughs> you know, trying to put the fire out. Now, that's a great example of bad choices getting out of control very quickly. In 30 seconds, that fire was everywhere. And I got to tell you this, it, it, it wasn't my first experience with gasoline. My dad and mom had warned me many, many times when I was burning out the anthills in the, in the yard by putting gasoline down the holes. I was creative. Well, I had an aunt that was a diabetic, or my grandmother a diabetic. I'd get her old syringes and fill them up with gasoline, put them down the ant holes, you know, shoot it down in there where I'm getting it in where it's going to do some good. And I'd stand back and watch them little critters, you know, watch them run everywhere. My mom and dad clobbered me for that. But just like me back then in my stupidity, now I'm going to make a case for today in our stupidity. 
How many times have you heard the principles over and over again? The admonitions in the Bible, the warnings in the Bible, the rebuke in the Bible. Of in life, you know it'll never work in life mixing gasoline with fire. The Bible is the only book that not only records the good things that men do, but it also records the bad things, the terrible things, the horrible things in graphic detail that men do. And the reason God does that is, is so to show us graphically the consequences of us violating biblical principles. And yet, we still do. Just like me at 11 or 12, when my mom and dad had whipped me and clobbered me and, and took things away from me, uh, yet I did not listen to them. And I got re- to be honest with you, I never messed much with gasoline other than putting it into my car when I got a little older from that day because it took something that tragic in my life to get me to understand that gasoline is not something you play with. And yet I've seen people today deal with them all the time that make terrible, tragic mistakes, and they seemingly never learn from anything that happens in their lives. Grace. Grace grace is given to us as the ability not to be under the law anymore, not to do what we want to do, but to be free from the law to do with our lives what God wants us to do. He says grace in truth, where I may have the grace to do whatever I want to do, honestly, but it's the truth that gives me the ability to stay within the confines of God's grace, to use the grace, but by God's truth, not to abuse the grace. And principles, the rules of conduct, the laws of living right, is what gets us through that. Now I want you to look at verse 21 here. And he says, bind them continually upon thine heart and tie them about thy neck. Now, as far as I'm concerned, verse 21 here is the key to all of this. Bind them continually upon thy heart. Oh, Psalm 119, verse 11. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Learning Bible principles. Learning and understanding. There's a set of biblical principles. There's a rule of action and conduct in the Bible, for every situation in life. And the goal of your life and my life as a Christian, fundamentally, should be simply to get them down and to start learning how to use them. I told you earlier, we put a lot of emphasis. Anybody got your three-by-five cards here you can throw me at real quick that we pass, uh, we'll use here? Anybody got them? Yeah, give me right here. Let me have these. You'll see a lot of people have these. We we have those little three-by-five cards that they put biblical principles on. And somebody comes in, and maybe they got an issue, they got a problem, or they got something they want to go through or learn, and we te- this is the way we teach them to learn biblical principles. We teach them by, first of all, putting them on a three-by-five card, and that person has a particular issue with something, whatever it may be. We'll give them maybe 15 or 20 of them as they go through discipleship and get studying. They put them on three-by-five card. This one here is 2 Corinthians 4.17. Your pastor is a buffoon, and who wants to listen to him? <laughs> for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, see, that's a promise. That's a principle. You get 30 of those. You go through a tough time. You pick out your principles. You start going through them. 
Every time you have a problem, if you've got a problem with anger, we give it on anger. Whatever your problem is, we'll give them to you. Or whatever you want to do. And then every time that comes up in your life, you get them out, you start going through it. We do that for a reason. We don't expect you to carry these cards around for the rest of your life. We expect to put them on cards right now that in the process of time, they'll become automatic to you. Back in our bookstore, we got a little thing called the Bible Promise Book. We give these out, or you can purchase one back there. They're, they're cheap. They're $1,000, but they're no big deal. And you'll find here that a lot of young Christians, they, they, the contents, anger, belief, charity, children, children's duties. Oh, mark that one in yellow. Comfort, contentment, correction, courage, death, enemies, envy, eternal life, faith, faithfulness, God's faithfulness, fear. All down the line. You turn to wherever the page is, you'll get 15 promises or principles on that subject. And we give these to you uh, in everything that we do because this is what you have to have as a Christian, a principled life. Because you're going to have to make choices, and the choices in time you want to make on the biblical principles that become uh, automatic in your life. Getting to the place that you, your life, where you're so familiar with them that it becomes an automatic thing. My address is 8308 Woodson Drive in Raytown, 64138. My phone number is 816-590-6315. Now, there was a time when I first moved in there that I had to actually write that down. My cell phone number had a really hard time because I never called myself. (laughs) Now, you know why I know my address so well? You know why I know my phone number? And I'll tell you something else. We could go to my house right now, and you blindfold me, and I could go through every room just about, and you tell me what room I'm in, and I'll tell you where everything is at, and I'll show you where it's at, and I could probably find it without much, much difficulty. Now, do you know why that is? It's because I live there. That's where I live. And somebody says, well, how do you learn the Bible and get the principles down? you got to start living there. you got to make it like it's your own home. These aren't just something that you use when you get in trouble. These are the investments that you make your life in. And when you live there, you learn them. They become absolute. They become part of your everyday life. And in time, if you stay with it, it'll become second nature. Last Sunday, I gave you a little test. We, we, we doing the prophetic side of the seven things. And I was showing you how that those... Un- unholy characteristics of the devil follow through history. And you've been around now, many of you, for a long time, and we've been in boy, all the different things we do in the Bible, and our whole world here is based on the Bible on all different levels. So I just threw it out for you to do a little test. Most of you got everything in the right place in the right time. Somebody was asking me at the picnic. They said, man, did you? I've been talking to people, and most of the people figured that thing out. And, and, and that's, really, that's really great. And he asked me, was you surprised that so many people figured it out? And I said, no, I wasn't surprised at all. I'd have been disappointed if they wouldn't. You see, I understand. I know that some of you guys here and some of you gals, but especially you guys, some of you guys know the Bible better than I do. So I may have the edge on you with experience, but come on, you're smarter than I am. You've got more brain cells than I got. You got, you got, you're younger. You got everything going for you. You, 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 you. Your mind's like a steel trap. You're sharp. You got all the things. When you get over the other side of the hill, when you got more days on this side and you got on this side, things get a little fuzzy sometimes. But that's what you're supposed to be. 
I can tell you there's churches that it, when you get to know the Bible better than the pastor, you're in trouble. I wear that as a badge of honor. You know why? Because that's my job. My job is to replace myself with men and women who know that book and love that book just as much as I do. And a pastor that doesn't have that as his ultimate goal, he's in the wrong business. He ought to be selling cars someplace or maybe work for Maytag. But you only get there one way. You only get that place in your life where that book becomes second nature to you and you know it and you understand it and you got recall of it by putting that book, as the verse says, smack dab in the middle of your heart. But that's where it needs to be. And when you do that, that's what's going to happen. Then he says in verse 21, and tie them about thy neck. Now, this is a very important one also. Tie them about your neck, because the neck in the Bible will always be a reference to man's will, okay, over God's will. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 27, Moses speaking to Israel here, he says, For I know thy rebellion and thy stiff neck. Behold, while I am yet alive with you this day, ye have been rebellious against the Lord, and how much more after my death? He's talking about Israel. He's right on the money. Now, I'm going to tell you something, folks. When you and I got saved, the number one thing that should have went out the door immediately was your broken will out and God's will in. That's the number one thing. In the Old Testament, God's favorite expression for the nation of Israel was that they were a stiff-necked people. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 20, it says, If you have an ass, it's to be redeemed by a lamb. Now, an ass in the Bible is a picture of an unsaved man. And here is an ass, an unsaved man needs to be redeemed with a lamb, the Bible says. Well, 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 New Testament doctrine in the Old Testament. But, he says, if that won't happen, then what you do is you break the ass's neck. Picture of an unsaved man's will. In Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 4. Yeah, that chapter where Christ is looking at the church, and he says some really wild stuff, but it's all means something in the Bible if you take your time to study it. It's very descriptive. And he's looking at the, the church, you and me. And he says, your eyes are like doves. Now, I, if you ever take a girl out, you know, and you want to compliment her, and you want to get into the book of Song of Solomon and use it in a biblical fashion, you know, that would be a good place to start. My, my darling, your eyes look like doves. I'd stop there. Because the next one says, your hair looks like a flock of goats. I don't think that's going to go over very well. And then it says, her teeth is like a flock of sheep. I mean, I can just see, you know, how, how do I look? Well, your hair looks like a flock of goats, man, I'll tell you. I, I don't think she'd appreciate that. I don't think she's going to get that. The Bible says that our lips are like a, scar, a thread of scarlet. Temples are like pontogram. But then it says the neck is like the Tower of David. You know, if you went through every one of those things in the Bible and you looked them up, 
you would find that it gives the most impressive, complete picture of what the church uh, should be when Christ sees it. Every one of those things is a spiritual thing. We look at it one time. In fact, I got a picture somewhere in my files where a guy took all of those descriptive things and painted a woman based on it. She's the ugliest thing you ever saw in your life. <laughs> but I know what it tells you. It tells you that great truth that I'm always trying to lay before your feet. God doesn't look at things like we look at them, does he? Amen, amen. We look at something and we make it on the beauty of what it looks like. God makes it beautiful on what it represents to him in the word of God. Great, 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 great concept. As I said, in the Old Testament, God's favorite expression for the nation of Israel was they're a stiff-necked people. And times today in the New Testament hasn't changed all that much in the New Testament either with God's people. Because many of God's people today are stiff-necked. Still today. And the Bible says in verse 21, to bind them continually all the time upon thy heart and tie them about thy neck. Well, look at verse 22. When thou goest, it shall lead thee. When thou sleepest, it shall keep thee. And when thou awakest, it shall talk with thee. Now, this is a great promise verse here on our relationship with God and His principles. Bible talks about the peace that passes all understanding that will keep our hearts in mind, Philippians 4, 7. It talks about in Isaiah 26, 3, God will keep him in perfect peace. Now, you accomplish that in your life that peace and all that he has for us with the principles of God, building the character qualities of God in your life, the things that he loves, not the things that the devil loves or that we love. And in verse 22, the principles of God will do three things basically for you if you're paying attention. The first thing it'll do is it says it leads you. Now, I told you a couple of weeks ago, what I need in my life for sure and you all need this too. You may not know it, but I'm telling you, you need it. What I need in my life is somebody who understands life on planet Earth better than I do. Amen. Neil Armstrong has always been a hero of mine. He's the first man that walked on the moon. And most people don't know that uh, he became a Christian later on, much many years later. But before he became a Christian, he coming back from that, he, uh, he, uh, he, lost, he got into alcohol, he got into drugs, he lost his marriage, he lost everything he had. And he got saved at some point in time, and he got, got his life back together. And I remember uh, reading his testimony one time, and he made one of the greatest statements I ever heard. He says, you know, when it came to, to the things of this world, they could teach me how to walk on the moon, but they could never teach me how to live my life on planet Earth. We all need somebody in our life that understands life more than we do. And that's the Word of God. I, I tell people all the time that when Jesus Christ went back to heaven in Acts chapter 1, he replaced himself with three things. The first thing he replaced himself with was the Holy Spirit of God. By 90 A.D., when John writes on the Isle of Patmos, the Bible is complete. The second thing he replaces himself with is the Word of God. And then in the book of Acts, we find that the third thing he replaced himself with was the local church. And when it talks about God leading you, God leading me, it's very clear to me. The Holy Spirit of God is my guide, but I got a journey I got to go through in life. The Holy Spirit of God is my guide. The Word of God is my roadmap, but the local church is the vehicle by which I get to where I'm going in life. And of course, the Bible says He'll lead you. He'll lead you through life by establishing our way. 
God has a plan. God has a, a, a way of life for you, a way he wants us to go. And in dealing with people and trying to help people, that's all really you can try to do. You can try to help them see and understand that what they need in life is to get somebody in there that will lead them that they don't make any more bad choices. He says the second thing, keep you when thou sleepest, it shall keep thee. Now this is where most people do their worrying, isn't it? Can't sleep, just lie there and think and worry. Some people cry themselves to sleep. Other people worry themselves to sleep. The principles of God's Word will take all of that away because you have the answer to 95% of your issues uh, just learning how to trust God and, and taking care of the principles and the rest will take care of itself. In fact, knowing and having the ability to use God's Word, the principles, will solve just about every issue you're ever going to face in life. I don't know how many times I've sat down in my office and I've talked with somebody about where they're at and what they're going through in their life. And they've made a lot of bad choices. And now they've got a lot of consequences in their life because of that. I don't know how many times I've heard them say to me, well, I just don't know what to do. I don't know how many times I've say, they've said to me, I just don't know which way to go. You know those two statements will never enter into your life as a Christian if you're living your life by the principles of the Word of God. There'll never be a time in your life that you don't know what to do, and there'll never be a time in your life which way you don't know which way to go. Because in life for a Christian, it's never, is there anything we can do? In life for you and me as Christians is, what we, will we do what we need to do? Okay? I have people all the time, they'll come in and they'll say, well, what do you think we ought to do? And I'll say, it isn't about what I think we ought to do. There's always something we can do. The real issue is, right now in your life with the bad choices you made and the complications you got, are you willing to change that and will you simply do what you need to do? That's always the issue, isn't it? And the third thing, talk to you when thou awakest. It shall talk with thee. Now, I, I call this God consciousness. Simply being aware that, uh, you know, that, uh, that in your life, uh, you can talk to God all day long. We should go uh, through our whole day looking and, uh, and, and equating everything we see, good and bad. To a biblical principle in every situation. And, uh, you know, it's a, I, 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 one thing I've learned years ago, I've learned that everything in my life, today and tomorrow, and the next day, and every day of my life, once I'm dialed into the Word of God, and once I believe what I believe about this, then everything in your life and my life, for the rest of our lives, will be nothing more than a training ground. God will take you through the day, and He'll show you. You can do the mental gymnastics. You can, you can play the scenarios out a thousand times. You can talk to God back and forth right in the midst of what you're doing because around you will be circumstances and people and situations that you'll, you'll be part of, that you'll have to look at, and you'll be able to, in your mind, go through and understand and equate the principles, good or bad, to every situation. Constantly reminding ourselves of what God says about everything we see. Watch the news, and you can equate it with what the principles in the Bible say. You can watch a movie, like I did with 12 O'Clock High many years ago. I equated a principle out of it that I've used many, many years since. You can read a book or at work with the people that you have to deal with. From every morning to every evening, asking God to teach you the principles involved and let Him talk to you through the book and His principles. 
simply being aware of God and what he's doing around you and allowing God to bring those things into your life. And when you have the principles, learn from them. That's how you get where you want to get. You don't learn it just from coming on Sunday. You don't learn it by giving God 15 or 20 minutes a day in the Bible. You get it by living there and using the principles in every situation you're faced with, even if they're not your situations. Use it. Learn from it. Look at verse 23. For the commandment is a lamp and a law is light, and reproof of instructions are the way of life. Psalms 119, verse 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You know, I, I say this from time to time, and it, it bears being said. I, I make no apology when I say that this life, that in this life, all you need is the Bible. I make no apology for that. And I know that's not popular today. We live in a Christian world. I'm not talking about a secular world. I'm talking about a Christian world today where Christian therapists, Christian psychology, Christian counselors all take the place of the Bible and the job that the pastors and the churches are supposed to do. Pastors are inept with the scriptures. So they subcontract you out to somebody else because they don't know how to deal with the situation themselves. I'm going to tell you something. And I make no apology for it. There isn't any problem you got anywhere in your life, in any circumstance or situation, that the Bible doesn't cover. Amen. I had a Christian psychologist tell me one time, he says, you know what? He says, I believe the Bible's truth, but he says, I think there's truth outside the Bible. And I looked at him and I said, you're a fool. There is no truth outside the Word of God. I heard a doctor one time, of, 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 I forget what he was, wasn't a medical doctor, and he says, uh, doctor of psychology or, or, you know, I think it was psychoceramics, crock pots, but anyway. He said, well, well, you know, society faces new challenges. And it sounded professional. I love it when they get up there with their $500 suits. And, you know, and he says, well, society now has new challenges. That's a new word, new challenges. You're challenged. You don't have any sin in your life. You have challenges. See, sin doesn't exist in your vocabulary. It exists all through God's vocabulary. And the thing was, well, in society now, we are faced with new challenges today. Challenges that did not have back in those days. And many of those challenges the Bible does not cover today. Sounds good. Even sounds logical. I mean, here you got all those people supposed to living in caves back here, you know, scrawling pictures of birds and animals on the wall, you know. And, and now here we are today, and, and we, the Bible was written way back then, you know. And when the Bible is just an old an, antique book, you know, like a lot of other antique books you find in, in, in old antique bookstores. I mean, who wouldn't think that, that something written there about 2,000 years ago would be up to date and on par with the new challenges that we all face? Well, doctor, I got some news for you. The wisest man who ever lived said in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9, that there's nothing new under the sun. That the same issues we face today are the same issues that they faced back then. And then the wisest man also said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter in the last book that he wrote, and he wrote three of the wisdom books, and the Bible gives him the credit for being the wisest man that ever lived. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, after he went through all of the theologies of man and found them worthless, 
at the end of his writings, after examining everything in life that all you wannabes want to be like but will never attain to his wisdom, he said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Then he had a little postscript, for God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. I'm telling you, the Bible's all you need. But you need it right. You need to accept the Bible even when you don't like it. Even when the medicine that comes out tastes bad. Some me- I told you a couple of weeks ago, some parents and, and will flavor their, their medicine for their kid so the kid doesn't get to leave a bad taste in his mouth. I guess that's okay, but I know that some preachers do the same thing. They want to put sugar on sin so it doesn't seem so bad so it don't make you bad. I never sugarcoat anything. It is what it is. If the Bible says it's black, then it's black. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. You ever notice how the Bible is your Christian survival tool handbook? I mean, the Bible, I see the Bible's all you need. And, and I want to tell you, we are in a world and we have to survive. You get on the internet and you can find a thousand books on survival. Who on TV doesn't like survival, man? Man, that guy can eat anything and make it look like it tastes good. He can find himself in the middle of Alaska in the wintertime, freezing to death, and he'll have a wool coat by the end of the show. Incredible. That's why we all like The Walking Dead. We're thrown into a situation where we have to survive. And you go to bed at night thinking, what would I do in those situations? I just get me a zombie suit and walk around with everybody. <laughs> We're in a survival situation in this world today. Do you know that? There's three men one time that were in a survival situation, way out with nothing. And they came across to this wide, raging river that they had to get across. And the one man, all Christians, the one man, he, he looked at that raging river, river and it's way, well, man, it must be 300 yards across. And it's roaring down through there. He gets down on his knees and he says, oh, God, give me the strength to get across that river. God gave him arms and legs that were, un, couldn't, and he swam across that thing. It took him two hours. The other guy there says, get on his knees and pray. He says, oh, God. Just don't give me the strength, but give me the tools to get across that river. God gave him a boat. He had the strength in the boat. He paddled. took him an hour to get across. Third guy, get on his knees and said, oh, God, give me not not only the strength and not only the tools, but give me the intelligence to get across that river. God turned him into a woman. He got out the map. Turned it, orientated it, looked, and 200 yards up the road, went across the bridge. <clears throat> We're all survivors. We're in a survival mode. You ever notice the Bible is your greatest survival book? I got an old friend of mine, Terry Phillips. And Terry and I, he, we go to all the gun shows together. Terry, sell, he doesn't mess with guns, but he sells army surplus. He had a surplus store 
we years ago down in Northtown, and, and he goes over to the gun shows. He sells all kinds of surplus. I go up and help him set it up. He loves this church. They tithe to this church. They live way up uh, about 100 miles from here, whatever it is. And uh, he, they love this church. They're always getting the tapes, always listening to it. They're always calling with Bible questions. And him and I just have a great time. He sells a lot of, in his surplus, he sells a lot of these army manuals that they have, you know. You know the number one manual that he sells? Because I sit there, I watch him go. It's on medical technicians in emergency situations and books on survival. People want to learn how to survive. You know, in the world that we live in, your Bible is 10 things that will get you through any problems you're in. Your Bible is like into a hammer in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29. It's like into milk over there in 1 Peter 2, 2. It's like into water in John 4. It's like into meat in Hebrews chapter 5. It's like into a sword over there in Hebrews chapter 4. You can defend yourself. It's like into nails in Ezra 9, 8 and Judges 9, 21. It's like into honey in Psalm 119, verse 103. And it's like into fire and it's like into light in Psalm 119, 105. It's like into apples in Proverbs 25, 11. It's like into bread in Matthew chapter 4, 4. You know, if you've got those 10 things and you're in a survival situation, you can get along just fine. Well, that's your Bible you got. And I'm telling you, in surviving on planet Earth with all of its problems, this is the only book you need. It's your survival guide. Because the devil wants to divide and conquer. He wants to divide and conquer your family. He wants to divide and conquer your marriage. He wants to divide and conquer this church and every other church. He wants to divide and conquer. And the only way you can do that and survive will not be how much gold you have or how many guns. Don't worry about William Devane and Rosalind Capital. Don't worry about what's in your wallet. You better start worrying about what's in your heart. Because there is the only survival you have. I'll look at verse 23. Commandment is a lamp and a law is light. Now as you try to survive in this old world, which is darkness, you'll find that the principles of God, God's word, are your only hope. They're your light. In fact, as your Bible is your survival guide, one of those things was fire by which you make light and lamps. And in your Bible where it says the commandment is a lamp and the law is light, you're going to find five different lamps that you need. The first thing your Bible is like, it's like a reading lamp. The Holy Spirit and Spirit of God will illuminate what you read. Luke 24, 45 said, Then opened he their understanding, they might understand the Scriptures. Psalms 119, verse 130 says, At the entrance of thy word it giveth light. Many of you take your Bibles and you have those little yellow china markers and you highlight a verse that's special to you, that it lifts itself out when you turn the page. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit of God does when he becomes your reading lamp. You'll read through there and he'll say, now, do you see that? Look at this. You'll have some need, you'll go to the Bible and that thing, you've read it a thousand times, but it'll stick out like you're going to trip over it. He's standing over your shoulder saying, you see that there? Now, you need that. Now, that's exactly what you need for your problem. You know what your problem is? You're going to the Word of God, and you're going to the Word of God because you got issues in your life, and you're going it. That's the thing right there. Oh, you don't want it. That's what happens. Now, the second kind of light it is, or lamp it is, your Bible's a heat lamp. 
The Bible will warm your soul like no other book when the cold winds of winter's time and life blow your way. It'll soothe your aches and pains of this old world, hopefully when you play a doubleheader on Saturday night. <clears throat> In the cold darkness of this old world, it will warm you and keep you close to the source of heat, the Holy Spirit of God. In the Bible, the Holy Spirit is likened to heat. Christ is likened to light. God is a spirit, but the Holy Spirit is likened to heat. It's, Christ is likened to light because you can see light. God is likened to a spirit, but you can't see the Holy Spirit of God, but you can feel the influence, so it's likened to heat. Psalms 19. And light of a heat lamp, warming your soul. Third thing, Bible's like a safety lamp. You know, our, our, our cars are incredible. I mean, I, I'm surprised that cars don't cost a million dollars with all the technology they got in them. But in our cars, we have all kinds of warning lights. You know they got a car out now that you don't even have to worry about. If a car pulls out in front of you, it'll, it's got sensors on it. It'll stop itself. I think that's incredible. But, you know, you get into your, you get into your, you get into your car, you know, and you have, a, you have an oil, uh, you, know, you know, your oil's low, a red light comes on, a warning light, safety lamp. If your car overheats, you know, you, 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 know, you get an you engine overheating. Uh, every once in a while, when it hits so many miles, uh, you know, your, your engine maintenance light comes on. And it won't go out till you go take it in to get it fixed. Your door's ajar, little light's on there, warning you the door's ajar. Yeah, if you don't put your seatbelt on, you hear that ding, 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 ding. Somebody's warning you, put your seatbelt on. Those lights come on to keep us safe. Well, the Bible's the same way. There are some flashing red warning lights that you need to watch out for to keep you safe. And the Bible makes it clear. When you get with the wrong association and you know the principles, the warning light comes on. When you go someplace you shouldn't be, the warning light comes on. When the influences you allow in your life, the warning lights will come on. Well, you can't come to a church service or a Thursday night Bible study or any church service. And if a guy's halfway worth of salt, that he ain't going to trip some warning lights in our lives. And I'm going to tell you something. Every bad choice we ever made was accompanied by a warning light. We just ignored it. We're like the guy who doesn't want to wear a seatbelt and doesn't like the belt. So you figure out how to hook it behind the seat so you don't have to wear it, but it doesn't ding anymore. I've seen people do that with the principles of the Bible. I've seen people drive two years. Confess your faults one to another. I've seen people drive their car two years with that engine maintenance light on, thinking that it just put it on there so you'd bring their car in and they could get money out of you. For two years I drove my car that way. And then one day I had some major problems that required a major overhaul. But don't you know that's the way it is in our life? You ignore the warnings and ignore the warnings and you think it isn't real, it isn't to you. You don't have to worry about it, it's for somebody else. And then one day in your life, you have to get a major overhaul in your life. Amen. Amen. That's the Bible. It's a warning light. Bible's fourth one says it's a traveler's lamp or light. As I said a little earlier, life's a journey, and it's filled with side roads, shortcuts, dead ends, traffic jams. 
modern-day GPSs, I think, are quite incredible. I know the richest woman in the world is whoever's voice they use on those things. I like being in alone because I just cuss her out and yell back at her. Nobody ever gets mad at me when I do it. They'll be purposely, I'll take a turn left when she says right, just to show her that I'm still a man of that car. Can't do that when the real GPS is sitting next to you. I don't mind the one in there. She just tells me when I turn the wrong way, I hate the one that tells me I'm not a good driver. But I think modern GPSs are quite incredible. Not that it'll tell you where you're at and how to get to where you're going. It'll give you three or four options. But I'll, I'll tell you, it'll tell you where the traffic jams are, where the wrecks are, where the road construction is. It'll give you weather warnings. It'll give you road conditions. It'll show you everything, the detours. They're incredible. But you have to use it. See? And I don't know about you, but I think human nature is probably always the same. I follow my GPS, but I got to be honest with you. I got a deep thing seated down inside of me that I think I know how to get there better than that GPS is telling me. And almost every time when I did follow my own self, I got lost. God's given you a book that is your lamp. It's your light. It's your traveler's lamp. It's your GPS. It knows where you're at and it knows where God wants to get you and it'll tell you every warning and every danger in there and get you past every detour to get you right where God wants you to be. Fifth one. It's a nightlight. Oh, by the way, guys, let me give you a little thing. You want to score some points? Going back up to the safety lamp with the oil light, come on. You want to get some points next time you get in the car? and your girlfriend sitting next to you, your wife, started up and you say, oh, doggone it. The warning light came on. She'll say, what warning light? You'll say, the hot wife warning light. <laughs> you write that down. <clears throat> Time for a pause here. Fifth with the nightlight. Luke chapter 18, verse 17, Jesus said, Except you come to me as a little child, you have no part of me. I'm 63 years old, soon to be 64. And yet with God, I'm just a little child. You know, they say that the older you get, the more you go back to being like a child in a physical sense. That's probably true. I know it ought to be true in a spiritual sense. Because the more you get spiritually, the wiser you get, the more you ought to realize that the dumber you are, the better off you are. And the best faith that you and I could ever have is childlike faith to just believe whatever God tells you. I agree with it. I agree with it. I agree with it. But you know, a child, little children, can all have one thing in common from the time to time. And that is that we all get afraid of the dark, don't we? I told you how verse 22 says it'll keep you when you sleep. So we as parents, you know, we leave a nightlight on. Now, for me, that's the Word of God. That's my nightlight. John chapter 1, verse 5 said, The light that shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended not. When the darkness of this old world scares me, and I'm afraid of the unknown and the darkness, I just turn on my nightlight, and the darkness and the shadows flee. 
but the nightlight is the principles of the Word of God in your life. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light. The original Motel 6 is in here. They'll leave the back light on for you. Now, the last thing he says, and I, I leave you with this, <clears throat> reproofs and instructions are the way of life. Not only are the principles of God there for, to guide us and to lead us to illuminate our situations in life, but I want you to see this. They're also there to reprove us. And as much as we don't like being reproved, the wisest man that ever lived said, reproof and instruction are just a way of life. In dealing with people, you can always tell if a person is of any quality by the way they accept reproof and instruction. Because reproof and instruction is a way of life. Bible says in Proverbs 27, 7, the full soul loatheth the honeycomb, but he that loveth the honeycomb, even the bitter things are sweet. See, that's what you, we have in our life when we love the Bible. I don't like being rebuked. I don't like being told I'm wrong. But I want to tell you something. Reproof is a way of life. And I think this is very important because how you accept reproof or reject it will always define you of how teachable you really are. I never, in dealing with people, I never define people. I learned a long time ago that you don't have to do that. You'll find that uh, when a person, uh, when a person uh, you know, allows the Word of God in and, and takes the reproof or stiffens their neck at the reproof, they always define themselves. I mean, you'll find with God's people, I mean, I don't mean this in a bad way, it's just the truth. You'll find some of God's people who are absolutely worthless. I mean, why would you think you wouldn't? And yet, if you say that that person's worthless, you're going to get accused of judging them or being mere and speeded. I get it. But you don't, you don't get it. In reality, the standard has already been set for us as Christians. The bar has been placed at a certain level of performance for us as Christians. I didn't set the bar there. A lot of you people get mad at me like you get mad at a cop because he pulled you over and gave you a ticket. He didn't make the laws. He didn't write the speed limit. His job is to enforce what somebody else put down as a law and a principle. I didn't write the Bible. My job as your job with your children and your family and your marriage and and all your life is to just reinforce the principles that somebody else wrote. But that's the way it goes, you see. People get mad. They get upset. And when a person refuses after they're saved to do anything by the standard set by God, and they just go through their life, living their life, doing their own thing, and never do one thing in that book that God ever required of them, they define themselves. I don't define them. They define themselves. The bar, the standard's already set. Reproof is vital in our spiritual growth, just as it's vital in our daily world, in sports, football, baseball, basketball. You don't become great without reproof. Someone telling you what you did wrong so you'll correct it to become better. The coach reproves us, you, rebukes you, only because he saw in you great potential. And he sees the potential as not being realized. So he stirs you up. He brings it to the surface. He tells you what's wrong, but then he gives you the instructions to be what you need to be. 
Hey, it's a vital part of our development in all ways of life. We learn by our mistakes, not just learning from them, but as I've said before, learning to grow through them. People who never learn from their mistakes are so easy to spot because they just keep going over and over the same mistakes in their life. When you follow the biblical principles in life, those mistakes will make you and not break you. Now, I got to say this, and you know this is true. There's many of God's people who will take the mistakes that you make through life and they will try to hurt you with them. I'm not talking about people who have made mistakes and try to lie their way out of them. I'm talking about people who admit their mistakes, knew they were wrong, and want to be better for it. People will slander you with your past. And they don't understand. Everybody on planet Earth has a history. Everybody's got baggage. Everybody's got problems. They will beat you up. They will try to define you in life by them. When I go to the grocery store, I don't know how you ladies shop. But when I shop for groceries... I always look for that carton in the middle of the aisle that's got all the dented cans in it. Or maybe the labels are off. Because I, I, those are the ones I'll buy because they'll sell them cheaper. Where it's a dollar over here, it's 40 cents here. And if it's something I need, I'll buy it in a dented can. I'll buy it in a scorched top can. I'll buy it with a label off. Because I, I realized that when I got home and I put the can opener to it and I got some green beans and they were dented, when I opened up that can and took out and dumped the green beans out, you know what? Those green beans were just as good as the cans that weren't dented. But you know why people won't, you know why people won't buy those? Because they think there's something wrong with the cans that are dented. And God's people will look at other God's people the same way because they've got some dents in their life. They will think that what's on the inside isn't any good. But I've been in this business long enough that I know that I've unscrewed some of your tops and I've looked inside some of your cans. And even though you may have some dents in your life, I'm going to tell you right now, what's on the inside is 100% good quality. Amen. Don't let people define who you are. Don't let people define who you are. A real Christian will take the mistakes that another Christian makes and will try to help them, not hurt them. They'll help you do better. They won't slander you with it or they won't make up things about you. They will, they will help you do better. They will encourage you to do better. But for all of us, getting a principled life is the only way to, as a Christian and as a church, to get to those places where we fly those tight formations, that we get everybody tight in, all the guns directed, the Bible doctrines, protecting the group integrity, the church integrity, everything through the biblical teachings that you get. Stay to the book, true to the book maintaining the church group integrity, taking the good things and the bad things in people's lives and helping them grow through it by the application of biblical principles. That's the key of Proverbs chapter 6 in these short verses. A lot of stuff here, but if you ever want to get to the place in your life where you have the victory in your life and you realize the goals that every one of us have, just like those little kids, going to take the principles. You know, right now, today, wherever you're at or what you're struggling with, obviously, in many cases, you're not going to be able to fix all your problems right now. There'll be a process to do that. 
But I'll tell you what, I've never met a situation, I've never been involved in a situation where you couldn't fix one thing right out of the chute. If you have a mind to, no matter where you're at, the one thing you can do today that'll stop the process and begin the right process is to stop making bad choices. If you can just do that, you can fix the rest. But if you can't do that, you'll never fix anything. Well, we'll hold up there. I want to take a minute here, and before we pray, I want to bring Blake up here, and I'd like all of